Welcome to Writers' Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, Richard Campanella, author most recently of Cityscapes of New Orleans. Welcome back, Richard. It's nice to see you. Thank you. Well, we know that you're a geographer at Tulane. You're um, in the School of Architecture, and we know that you're from Brooklyn originally, so you come by your yat (laughs) accent, honestly. (laughs) And maybe not everybody realizes you spent some time in the Peace Corps. I did. And you spent some time in Washington, D.C., which Mm -hmm. is a different kind of adventure. And anyway, I guess you've been here, what, about 20 years? Yeah, in the region for um, 25, 26 years and moved to the city proper 17 years ago and been studying the city for about 21, 22 years now, kind of seriously studying it. Well, you seriously have written some books that are just fabulous that tell us everything. The, 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 The more I learn, the less I know. Well, the more you write, the more we know. Um, I think of your 10 books, if I can use uh, interviewer's privilege, one of my favorites is your very first one, New Orleans Then and Now. You have pictures that you took, um, you and your wife took when you, I guess, what, 99? That was a long time ago, 96, 97, yeah, it came out in 99. And you and you compared it to pictures taken as much as a hundred years earlier. I guess when photography just was getting yeah, going. Yeah, I think the, the oldest one in the book are actually eighteen forties daguerreotypes. Um, so uh, yeah, the whole process is called re photography, uh, and the 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 trick is to match the perspective of the original photographer as close as possible. Um, so that there's uh, almost a perfect one-to-one correspondence in the two perspectives. And um, so, you know, visually speaking, what the uh, what the reader is able to do is um, is through close close observation, uh, read the differences between the two photographs and extract um, uh, stories of of urban transformation from them. Well, it's fascinating. I was here in ninety nine and ninety six and ninety seven, I guess, when you were taking the pictures. But for people that were here, before that, I mean, the contrast, it's just very, very pleasurable. All all the books are great. Um, the Bourbon Street is a lot of fun to read about how Bourbon Street got there. But this new one, Cityscapes, now this is, um, besides writing books and teaching and studying everything and making maps and doing whatever geographers do, you also uh, write columns for laymen not just for academics, so that we can all appreciate what you understand. And you publish these columns in the Picayune. Well, it's NOLA.com now. And you, you're you on the radio with some of the information. You get interviewed. What is it each month? It uh, WWNO does an interview that um, parallels the, my Cityscapes column in the Picayune, which usually comes out the second Friday of each month and of course online. Then I also write for Preservation in Print, which is a preservation resource center publication monthly, nine times a year. And then the quarterly Louisiana Culture Vistas where I have a column called Geographer's Space. Well, we're so happy that you found time for us because I know how busy you are. But this, um, this new book is a collection of, I think it's 77 uh, columns that you've written over the past 
recent years, and um, it's just, they're just fascinating. But what? Tell us something about the title. What is a cityscape? What do you mean well, by that? Well, I, I start out by quoting um, one of my uh, my my favorite geographers, a gentleman by the name of Carl Sauer, studied at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, about 100 years ago, and he described the cultural landscape um, as being fashioned out of a natural landscape by a cultural group. Culture is the agent, the natural area is the medium, and the cultural landscape is the result. And so you could take that and impose it on urban areas, and that would give you a cityscape. So a cityscape, in sum, a cityscape is the, shall we say, the, the, the tout ensemble, the total impression of all visible elements in an urban scene. So, of course, it's the, the buildings, the streets, the trees, but more so it's the angles of the streets, the setbacks of the building, the massings of the building, um, the street furniture, the fences, uh, how biota and, and trees interact, how people occupy the cityscape, um, so all of that tells a story. Uh, and uh, every few years, every generation or so, we rewrite that story through land use change, demolitions, new constructions. Uh, and so what this book is about is is reading these cityscapes to understand that transformation. It's about spatial explanation. Well, and I thought in the preface, you summed it up for people like us, the why Behind the where. The why behind the where. That that is that is essentially what, what a geographer studies, particularly a historical geographer. Well, you used, um, pardon me, you used five uh, divisions of your book, and I'm going to take um, interviewer's privilege again, if you don't mind, and just pick out several of them, you know, a couple from a representative sample maybe for you to discuss with us today. Um, the first one, I just love the title, A Glorious Mess, and you try to explain New Orleans neighborhoods to us. Yes, uh, I am um, a notorious skeptic of uh, the notion that neighborhoods have um, official names and clear demarcations. Um, and for those of you who live in New Orleans, you're probably familiar with the jigsaw puzzle map of the 73 official neighborhood boundaries. Um, and people have uh, ascribed all sorts of um, importance as if this is cultural gospel. Um, but what many folks don't realize is that this was a bureaucratic concoction uh, dating from the 1970s uh, in the era when quantification and, uh, and putting numbers on, on urban spaces for the purposes of city planning became a priority. If you're going to enumerate and quantify, you have to draw a line around something. And so what planners came up with starting in 1973 were uh, they took these pre-existing census tracts and reconfigured them to local features, broke them up along the Industrial Canal, along major boulevards, uh, in some cases simply drafted vernacular names such as Garden District, in other cases utilized ward names, and in some cases completely invented names. Um, and so because of the power of maps, uh, lots of New Orleanians who had a much more complex and nuanced and abstracted notion of New Orleans neighborhoods, one in which neighborhoods bled into each other amorphously rather than a crisp dividing line that had multiple names, uh, people began to discard their beautiful, complex 
uh, deeply rooted cultural perceptions of neighborhood geography and replace it with this bureaucratic construct. When, so, so, so what I try to do in this essay is walk people through our historical uh, perceptions of what was where and what was called what, uh, and then um, and then you know kind of lay the groundwork for the superimposition of these artificial bureaucratic constructs. When I when I moved here and bought a house. It, according to these constructs, as you call them, I was in Riverside, and not one New Orleanian that I met had any idea. I said, oh, you know, I'm in Riverside, and I was putting on my stationery. They said, what is it was exactly. West Riverside? They had exactly. no idea. They exactly. said, uh, Upper Upper Irish Channel? You know, yeah. up to, exactly. you know, nobody knew what I was exactly. talking about. Um, and well, one of the, you see, you have all sorts of curious a phenomena going on here because lots of newcomers to the city who uh, might be, and we saw this particularly right after Katrina when people from all over the world were writing about New Orleans and might have been kind of befuddled about what is called what and wanted to, quote, get their facts straight. So what did they do? They, they would Google up the official neighborhoods and make these bold declarations that this is in fact called, you know, Riverside or all these concocted names. Um, such that newcomers tend to be more smitten with the official names and and uh, kind of strident about them than old timers who who are at ease at ease with a much more uh, fluid sense of spatial identity. Well, I, I quickly learned, <laughs> um, and that was thirty years ago. So <clears throat> it, I'm a slow learner, but I do learn. Um, in, in that same section, you talk about one of everybody's favorites, Monkey Hill. Monkey Hill, um, I have a five-year-old, so during the course of writing a lot of these pieces, <coughs> during the course of writing a lot of these pieces, uh, you know, we've been, been raising a child in New Orleans. And you start to um, uh, view uh, the uh, perspective that they have on the city and realize that, as all of us remember, there is a geography to one's childhood. There are places that are of utmost importance to you. There are places that you're you're scared of. Remember, every neighborhood had a haunted house. Uh, and um, so, you know, through Jason's eyes, particularly when we go to the zoo, I was delighted to observe him as he mastered the art of, of uh, perambulation, of uh, making his way uh, uphill for the first time up Monkey Hill. And he got to the top. And he was able to look down on these grown-ups, and he could fit them between thumb and forefinger. Uh, and then gravity would release him, and he could go faster than he ever ran before going downhill. Um, and so um, uh, I think we've all been uh, kind of uh, charmed by, uh, by that little mound of dirt. And so what this article is about is a, a history of how it came about. Uh, and what surprised me was that um, it was not really, it, it was not intentionally created. It was almost an afterthought. Kind of a slag heap. Of... Yeah, it was a slag heap. Uh, they, uh, they were draining, um, this is during the Depression, during the New Deal, but before the uh, creation of the WPA. Uh, the WPA is almost universally cr uh, credited with creating Monkey Hill, but it was actually a predecessor agency um, and in 1933 that went to drain out this thicket on the Batcher by uh, excavating the soil to, that would become um, the what is now the Louisiana Swamp and the Monkey Island exhibit. So they had this spoil, they piled it up in this particular place um, and created this, this nameless little hill 
uh, the next summer, children started to discover it, and they took to it, uh, and uh, children uh, gave it character. They they gave it a name, uh, and um, and and made it a part of the uh, the New Orleans vernacular as well as 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 uh, the 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 geography of a local childhood. Well, we won't go into it, but there is a usurper now <laughs> that some people say uh, in City Park. The, and you do mention the elevation of, um, I guess it's called Laborde uh, Hill or uh, Mountain. Laborde Mountain uh, in uh, the Couturier <laughs> Forest, which is much higher. Yeah. Um, uh, and but let us keep our memories, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> we who love New Orleans, we just love Monkey Hill. There's even a Monkey Hill bar. Yes, and... there are, not for children. <laughs> <laughs> well, in another section, you talk about um, one of my uh, interests is the the fact that we don't you you tell this wonderful joke how, how did how how many New Orleans New Orleanians does it take to change a light bulb? Go ahead. He <laughs> <laughs> said it takes three: one to change the light bulb, and two to talk about how the old bulb was better. And you're using this to illustrate why we don't like change around here, do we? Um, that that uh, I think that is um, an accurate statement in recent decades. As you go back, however, when this was the largest city in the South, one of the largest in the nation, constantly changing, grabbing onto new technologies, less so was that the case. The city actually embraced change and embraced new styles. Well, and you point out, I mean, the Art Deco years, that's modern, but modern, I guess, and people seem to appreciate that. That's right. That's exactly the point I was going to make, that um, mid-century modernism, right after World War II, during the Morrison years, um, uh, many uh, residents, both uh, at the you know building commercial architecture as well as residential architecture, uh, were uh, eagerly adopting the latest styles. Um, and so we have some really good examples of uh, 1950s, 1960s modernism uh, in places like uh, the Lake Vista neighborhood and many commercial. Um, uh, commercial examples. It's only after <coughs> it's only after the the precipitous decline uh, of of spirit and the loss of population during white flight and the middle class exodus of the '60s, '70s, and early '80s, followed by the the oil bust, that um, that the general zeitgeist was increasingly nostalgic. Uh, for for this perception of the good old days, this rather romanticized perception and started to view um, modernist architecture as emblematic of that era when everything soured. Uh, and so most of the residential architecture that is being built now within Greater New Orleans tends to be retro revival, historical revival. In fact, I did a study uh, with a graduate student at the School of Architecture whereby we came up with a random sample of 5% of all the new residential structures built since Katrina. Uh, And long story short, kind of categorized them stylistically. For every one new home in New Orleans that exhibits a contemporary or a modern architectural style, there are 14 that have um, a neo-traditionalist historical revival uh, facade. Well, we are what we are. Um, And I guess we can briefly mention the fact that Related to that is when we have this tunnel under one of our former buildings. 
the uh, the seven hundred foot little known tunnel at the foot of Canal and Poitras Street, uh, built uh, in <coughs> uh, built in exuberant expectation of the Riverfront Expressway. Um, so uh, this was the plan originating from nineteen forty six, but really gathering momentum when it was greatly uh, expanded by the Louisiana uh, Highway Department in the early 1960s for future Interstate 10 to bring in uh, westbound traffic from points east. It would bifurcate at Elysian Fields Avenue. There would be a Claiborne Expressway bringing traffic downtown and a Riverfront Expressway bringing traffic over the bridge to the West Bank. So how to negotiate all the traffic at the foot of Canal Street, especially since the city was preparing to build the uh, uh, the um, International Trade Mart and the Rivergate Exhibition Hall at the same time. So in order for that latter project to not interfere with this larger federal funding for the Riverfront Expressway, the city, using its own tax dollars, that is the citizens' tax dollars, preemptively had built this 700-foot-long foot box culvert tunnel for, you know, like like six lanes of high-speed interstate traffic to go under Canal Street, emerge from Poitras, and then onto, onto the bridge. It's built. It's in place. 1969, the Riverfront Expressway is canceled, and now the city is stuck with this perfectly useless, isolated tunnel beneath the foot of Canal Street. Well, the whole story of how that people really wanted to put, I mean, to me, it's unbelievable knowing the people, how they feel today, that they actually thought it was going to be a good idea to have the expressway along the river. I mean, I I guess it makes but sense. Most, most of the movers and shakers in the city were in favor of I it. I know. Uh, from That's... the press to the city to the Chamber of Commerce, uh, it, it was viewed as um, a way to keep the action downtown. Uh, they were worried of of the same suburbanization that everyone else was worrying about. So it was a, a heavy-handed attempt to to keep downtown relevant, a little too heavy-handed. Well, things would have been so different. Um, this chapter, um, the section about, you, I, I might not be saying the word right, cadastral? Cadastral systems, a favorite topic of mine. Well, I was in uh, False River mm -hmm. uh, this Perfect weekend, example. and you have a picture here, and briefly in about a minute or two if you can possibly do it you describe that there are four different ways of dividing up land in louisiana in louisiana more so than just about any other state in the nation because we've had so many empires giving a shot at louisiana uh, what a cadastral system is is a land surveying system how to delineate land and the whole paperwork process of recording who owns what so uh, we have the fingerprints of four of cadastral systems somewhere throughout the state. The French long lot system deline delineated perpendicularly <coughs> delineated perpendicularly to uh, rivers and bayous. We are on French long lots right this moment here on Magazine Street. Um, and then the Spanish had uh, a more pastoral ranching-based system called sitios and ranchos that use units like the Vara and the Liga. And we have some examples of those in extreme southwestern uh, Louisiana, which spilled over from Spanish Mexico. We also had an English presence here, not in New Orleans, but just across the lake. And to this day, if you go around East and West Feliciana Parish to ch towns like Clinton and Jackson, 
and explore the countryside there, you could see the remnants of the old English meets and bounds system, which is what you also see in Virginia, Kentucky, and the Northeast. And that and was then, more using rivers it was irregular. and natural. It was, it was a very irregular system. Yeah. It went from this oak tree to that ridge to that stream to that oak uh, back along this road. And the problem with that was that the oak tree would die and the stream would me meander. And so throughout former British colonial areas in early American times, there were lawsuits back and forth on the frontier because of this irregularity of land titles. So Thomas Jefferson and the Americans intervene with what they consider to be an absolutely superior system. And it's uh, it's graph paper. It, there's an X and Y axis, a baseline and, and principal meridian, and then six mile by six mile sections and everything. Every piece of land has exact 90 degree angles and an exact address, township, range, and section. Uh, and so in Louisiana, American Township and Range fills in everywhere else that wasn't previously surveyed by either English, French, or Spanish. And so when you look at our cadastral system of Louisiana, um, you could almost literally see where each of these um, these uh, empires uh, laid, laid their claim. Well, and the, the Arpents, you said, were a magazine and... The, the, that's what explains why when you go uptown, it's so irregular. Like there'll be six or eight blocks that are named after some guy's kids, and then there's some numbers in the middle there. That, but they only go up to what eighth, right. eighth street, and then there's a new set because they were um, much more narrow at the river. It was so everybody could get a piece of the river. So each planter would have access to the river and an even slice of the relatively scarce high higher, drier, fertile terrain of the natural levee. So the way this left behind uh, evidence in our cityscape today, as you go up and down any one of the river parallel streets, including Magazine, <coughs> wherever you make uh, a slight inflection point, that's an old plantation line. So just imagine Felicity, um, other streets, Valmont, Joseph, uh, Amelia, upper line, hence the name, lower line, uh, magazine and chopper tools in St. Charles make very slight seven and five degree angles. Each of those mark where an old plantation line was because different surveyors at different times were tasked to lay down a street grid within one of these long lot plantations. And they didn't always meet up exactly, exactly. and you give some some colorful right. examples of that. A Britannia at Joseph Street is one example. <laughs> That's a big one. Yes. <laughs> and also, finally, I understand, thanks to you, why... You come to upper line before you come to lower line. <laughs> it was the upper line of the Bolany plantation, which happens to be downriver from the lower line of the McCarty plantation, which, <laughs> which is, is by Carrollton. <laughs> uh, I'm a tour guide now, part time, and it's real fun to explain to tourists, try to explain in, you know, layman's terms. And I'm a layman, of course, um, our unique numbering system and, and the fact that you can be, be on a street that starts out parallel to another street and it ends up perpendicular to another street because of the river. Anyway, we don't have a lot of time left, but let's at least touch on disaster and recovery because that's such a crucial part of what you study and what you write and what you try to share with us as we make decisions about what to do. Um, we weren't always, um, we, at one time we were above sea level, and you explain how now we're not. Um, but but with what's going on, wh what can be done? Is there any hope for well, us? Well, uh, 
there's there's two answers to that depending on if we're talking about within the metropolitan area developed areas or in completely rural empty marshes <coughs> if it's the latter then we're talking about the situation of coastal restoration and we do have a lot of options there uh, pending the ownership of the land and the permission of the owner. But at least theoretically, we would be able to bring in river water through diversions, sediment dredge from the bottom of the river through siphons, and rebuild land um, at a pace faster than the sea is rising. That's hard to do, but it's theoretically possible. In urban environments where people are already living, where investments are, have already been made, there's no way to go and reverse urban subsidence. You can't go back in and reinflate soils. What you can do is build above the grade, or you could try to store water on the landscape to fill in whatever cavities remain to slow down future subsidence. But you can't reverse past subsidence. So how do you do this? This is what we're learning more and more from the Dutch of the importance of an open drainage system, a so-called green drainage system, in which uh, instead of viewing every drop of water as an engineering problem to be routed through a pump and through a canal and, and jettisoned into surrounding water bodies, we want to slow down the movement of rain and runoff, um, capture it on the landscape, slow it down, retain it in retention ponds, and what every gallon that we retain on the cityscape is one less gallon we have to test the pumps to remove. Furthermore, it's one more gallon that infiltrates in the soil and keeps the, the sponge wet. We are a fluvial delta. This landscape is supposed to be wet. It sunk below sea level when we dried it out. So this is where we need to go. But no, it's not going to turn our topographic bowl into uh, something that's, that's not a bowl-shaped condition. So we, we have to live with that forever. Is, is it possible, given the political nature of... America today. It's it's tough because it's very difficult to undo a hundred years of urbanization while people are making lives upon that space. That's the bad news. The good news is that this can be done incrementally. So we have like like two thousand Nora lots that don't have any buyers. Those are opportunities for bioswales, retention ponds. Uh, we have the donation of the nuns uh, made in Gentilly, the Gentilly Resiliency Project, the Lafitte Greenway. Each of these are opportunities for permeable soils. Uh, and the way I like to think of it, instead of thinking of, boy, we have such uh, a challenging, huge project ahead, think of it in little tiny increments, like taking steps up a big mountain. Uh, and so every gallon that we retain, one less gallon uh, to remove. So it is possible... But is it likely that that this movement will grow or your your question is its own answer? <laughs> I, I have grandchildren, Richard. <laughs> well, I won't ask the big question, which is how much time have we got? Uh, I, I, I get that I get that all the time and I, I grapple with it all the time. Well, we're here now and we're glad to be here and we certainly enjoy all your books. Um including uh, the latest. Now, usually I quote people, you know, who rave about your books, but, you know, I think I'm just going to rave about your books myself. Um, if you really want to know what's going on, pick up any one of his books, um, and especially, I think, this most recent one 
cityscapes of New Orleans, and whether you're a newcomer or you've been here for generations, um, you'll really learn so much about New Orleans. And we thank you for... You're welcome, and thank you. You've been listening to Writers Forum, and I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.